Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. This week, we're talking about alternative ways of gathering insights in user research beyond just verbal and written communication. There's many circumstances when words just aren't the best option for people to tell us what they're thinking, feeling, or doing. So being able to use physical or tactile methods can really improve the insights you're able to gather. My guest today is Anna Macaranas, who is a senior design strategist at Digitalist Group and Network in Vancouver, BC. Anna is speaking about this topic at the upcoming Radical Research Summit in Vancouver on September 27th. And it's such an interesting and really useful topic that I really wanted to share it with all of you. If you're listening to this before September 27th and want to go to the conference, go to 2019radicalresearchsummit.com and use the promo code UXCAKE, all caps, for 20% off your ticket. Anna has some really great insights and examples for how to get participants to express themselves if words aren't working. Before we get started, I just want to send a quick thank you to Please Read Me Things and OneNote for your lovely reviews of the podcast in iTunes. We are so appreciative. UX Cake is for the community and it's powered by volunteers and your reviews and social media sharing not only help others find this content, but it also helps keep our enthusiasm up. So please consider a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. And there's this new site called Podchaser that I'm becoming a fan of. It's like the IMDB of podcasts. And I think it's a better way to discover new podcasts. And I'm not getting paid to say it. I just really like it. So I thought I'd share it with you. Anyway, you can also rate us on Podchaser if you do check it out. And lastly, sign up for our monthly newsletter. Really, we don't send much email. And if you sign up, you'll get updates, but also access to resources and bonus episodes we'll be adding soon. Okay, let's dive in. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for joining me on UX Cake today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So when we do user research, for most of us, the common approach typically is asking questions, observing, asking participants to think out loud, maybe do a diary study or even a card sort, or even other approaches that are generally about getting our input through words, either verbal or written. What you're talking about is that relying on words only can sometimes fall short and we might not be getting important insights that we could in other ways. Do I have that right? First of all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's quite interesting because I recently got this realization from a project that I recently did where I designed a workshop activity that was written and noticed that like two thirds of the room really got the idea. And then this other third had such a hard time filling it out. It really got me thinking, why, why is this so difficult for some people, but so easy for other people? 
Well, and so that's my follow-up question is why is relying on words not always enough? So it really goes back in, into cognitive science and even learning theory, going back into how we actually attain information. Because if you really think about it, research or our jobs as researchers is to flesh out or get out these learnings that other people have had through their experiences. And when you look into the science, you'll, you might've already heard these things, but when you look into the science, you'll notice that people learn and grasp experiences in different ways. So while some people are really strong verbally or even through written words, there's other people who grasp things more visually or kinetically or even through tactile. And so their learning style, are you saying that also contributes to the way that they best express themselves? So if they're, if they're less of a verbal learner, they might also be able to express themselves better in a more tactile way. Yeah. And a lot of this can be sort of seen when you see what sort of profession they might choose or how they express different ideas. So before I came to this realization, I did a lot of user research with healthcare, finance, even government. And a lot of these people were quite eloquent. They knew how to write and talk their ideas. And then I go into this project with a lot of construction workers or tradespeople and notice that they're more tactile. They use a lot of gestures, but you know, finding the right words for them was quite difficult. But I think what's very interesting is like when we go through an experience, we go through different phases of, you know, reflecting on the experience, abstracting key learnings or concepts, and then reapplying those concepts through experimentation. But what's very interesting is when you take these concepts and you put them in a quadrant, you'll notice that people tend to sway in one of these four areas. So someone who's really good at experimenting, experimenting in the moment is really good with their hands and they're more likely to be a mechanic or a hairdresser or a chef or someone who's really good at reflecting and analyzing concepts would make a really good analyst or researcher. So another thing that came across my mind is because I'm more on the analytic abstraction and reflection of concept sides, do I tend to make activities that fall in that quadrant? And so part of it is just challenging myself to be like, can I make things that are less on the reflection and more experimental? Can I make things that are more hands-on to really connect with the people who are less like myself and who learn differently than how I learn? Oh, that's really interesting. I love that because you're reminding us that as researchers, we are coming from our own perspective and even very experienced researchers, we're building, uh, creating these study plans based on what we've done before, based on how we understand things. And you're, it sounds to me like, you know, this is a good reminder that we need to look outside of ourselves and also try new things. Yeah, for sure. And in addition to the learning styles, I think something 
that also can add a shoe peg to your plans is that some people just from like a cultural or society perspective aren't willing to give you feedback, maybe because they weren't taught to express their feelings that way, or they were taught not to offend. So, you know, aside from the way people interpret experiences and take learnings from that, you've got culture and these society expectations that can also act as a barrier. So, you know, it's really important to gain the trust of someone and really open them up. But even then, if, you know, even if they're comfortable with you, you still might need that extra push, that actual visual cue, that different way of thinking to really let that guard down and let the feedback flow. Well, that's fascinating. So I think at this point, probably a lot of us, including myself, are wondering what are some examples of this non-word-based research? You know, how do you get insights without asking questions? How do you gather insights without people specifically giving you verbal answers? Yeah, and that's a great question. So a lot of the ideas that I have so far aren't new. They actually leverage existing methods, but the twist that I'd like to put on them is to use them for reflection rather than ideation. So one of the ways to really um, get tactile or kinetic people providing feedback in a nonverbal way is to use role play. And I really, what kind of helps with this, because, you know, role play isn't that easy to do. We're not all actors. What really helps is if you have some sort of tool or prop that they can use to act out an event that they normally do or act out an experience that happens. And this is really useful, especially in times when you can't really be in that moment. So normally you'd want to have these things happen naturally through observation or through contextual inquiry or through ethnography. But, you know, what if the occurrence of this event, you just can't time it right? Like it doesn't happen when you're there or what if the situation is quite sensitive? So like it could be like a surgery or something more sensitive where you're not going to be in the room and you can't see this. So in that aspect, having someone role play that actual event and then giving them a tool or prop, this could either be some sort of costume to get them in the mood, to be in the role that they're supposed to be, or it could be a prop where if we're asking them to use a specific product that we're evaluating, that ambiguous prop would be the object in question. And so how are you gathering their input in a way that's not verbal? So instead of being like, walk me through the experience and have them walk me through their actions, I ask them to show me their actions. So for example, in one instance, we were looking at understanding the ride sharing experience. So rather than having them narrate to me the ride sharing experience, I got them to show me through role play. Well, that's a really good example. You mentioned that, you know, some of these methods are, they're known methods, but you've put a twist on it. So give me an example of that. Yeah, so there's this method out there right now that's called dot voting. And typically it's used to, in a workshop or an 
design ideation setting to vote on the ideas that people resonated with best. But this idea of being able to give this feedback directly on the artifact uh, rather than the person is quite effective for people who might not want to give critical feedback because they don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But by taking the person away and putting it directly on the artifact, that helps. Oh, that's really interesting. I can totally see that. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. So the twist that I was talking about with this dot voting is, so instead of making it a group activity, you would make it more individual. And also, instead of putting it on ideas, you actually put it on an interface. So, you know, let's say you have an interface for home insurance or something, and you want the person to, you know, point out the questions or the elements of that page that are really like, oh, I like this feature. I find this feature really confusing, or I hate this question. And to do that, you could use different colored stickers. If you give them three stickers to talk about things they like, things they don't like, things they're confused about, you can make the feedback a bit more rich, but still keep it directly on the artifact and avoid having them to like verbalize what they like or don't like, but by just like thinking about it and putting a sticker on the interface itself. And if you ever wanted to like overlap multiple feedbacks, you can cut this sort of like semantic heat map. And where I sort of got this idea was actually from grade school when they tried to teach us a bit about emotional intelligence. So I remember getting this strip where like there's these different faces. They don't say the word sad, happy, angry or confused or whatever. They just, they're the faces. And then you, you were told to like pick the face that represented you that day and to show it. And then the teacher would kind of just walk through why you were feeling that way. Right. So that was sort of part of the inspiration for twisting the dot voting in this way. So instead of, you know, I find this tool tip to be really confusing if that's really hard for them to verbalize, they can do use the stickers to kind of express that confusion or doubt. And then the researcher can kind of try to talk through that bit in a less intrusive or direct way. Yeah. So you could even describe the color with a, you know, happy, confused, upset face, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like color, there's so many different cultural connotations of color, but so like everyone might have a different resonance to it. So unless you put clear instructions on, you know, green is this, red is this, yellow is this, or use emojis. But I just, I think the colored dots are easier to find at a Staples or like a, a stationary store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like a total awesome research hack. Do you ever find, though, that these methods that work well for those who maybe are less verbal in how they communicate. Do the same methods perhaps not work as well for others who are much more verbal? Definitely. I don't think you're ever going to get like an activity where everyone resonates with it really well. And that's sort of the challenge of, you know, mixing up the toolbox. So, you know, you might, if you're doing a workshop, you might have one activity 
that looks at expressing things verbally or written. And then another activity where people are doing things in a more visual or kinetic way. But if you're doing something that's a bit more one-on-one, just being able to read that person and being really comfortable with pivoting the activity. If you notice like, okay, they don't want to write things down or they're struggling with their words, like being really agile and being like, is there another way I can do this to get them more comfortable and to get the feedback that, you know, they'd be happy to give, but not necessarily know how to give it. I see. So you are talking about really kind of auxiliary methods to a research study that you might typically ask questions, but now you have these extra methods kind of in your back pocket if you need them. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I do an interview or a workshop, I have this little briefcase that just has some random things. It has clay, it has post-its, it has stickers so that I can always pivot if I'm trying to do an interview and notice that it's not necessarily working according to plan. Yeah. What are some other ways that you get input if someone isn't very verbal? For example, it could even be a whole group. Say you're working with construction workers was one of your examples. And you notice that in the entire group, maybe there's a lot of folks who the best way of them expressing themselves is not verbally or in writing. So what are some other ways that you ask them for input? I know for this particular project, when we found that written was really hard, we did a lot of card sorting We tried to make a lot of these different templates where we have like different features or functions or even user needs that we got from the first part of the research. And we get them to like pin it into a roadmap. But sometimes even when you have these cards or these like building blocks of features and functions, They might just be like, well, I'd like it if I can combine this minus that with this other thing. And then, you know, they'd still try to create something that you didn't put in the confines of your little kit. So there's definitely a risk. But, you know, when someone really wants to share something with you, they'll they'll find a way. Mm hmm. In my mind, I guess what I'm seeing is almost like uh, allowing your your participant to build a screen with little like a paper prototype, you know, with little pieces, um, of the screen, for example. Yeah. And that, that was definitely something that we did like, so, you know, taking that card sorting, but instead of just having like the words, maybe you have a picture of the function and then, you know, even, even if you have a picture of the function, you know, what you think that function is might be still different than what they think it is. So having them build it, and then walk you through what that that new interface can do is still quite interesting. Uh-huh. Right. And so some people will be more verbal and want to, you know, explain a lot more than others. I'm curious if when you are adding these more kinetic or physical methods, does it change the way that you do your analysis or your synthesis? That's a really interesting question. It definitely It requires a bit more prep work to do these methods um, because you're creating these little building blocks or little templates. It's, It's still all qualitative data to some extent. So, you know, you just need a bigger room because you now have all these 
different physical artifacts you might be looking at, or, you know, if you were doing role play, now you have to look through a lot of video, but in quintessentially, a lot of it is like finding these similarities or themes or patterns across the different inputs that you got. What I also find really helpful though, is when you're able to pair some of these things. So, you know, maybe you got something that was like a role play, but you're able to pair that up with some sort of like written response, just so anything that you might be getting from like a, a physical artifact, because it's not written and you're kind of trying to interpret it in your own way, you're, you're risking this bias of being able to augment that with another thing to validate what you think you're seeing is sometimes helpful. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I, I did have a question about that. If you have ever seen that, if you're getting input that's not verbal, is there a chance for more subjectivity in interpretation? I think whether something's verbal or something you observe or something you try to interpret yourself, there's always going to be that bit of bias that you add as the person analyzing it. So for that example, with the dot voting, that one's a little bit more clear cut in the sense of, you know, you're able to see the areas of the interface where there's a lot of likes or a lot of confusion or a lot of dislikes. But for something where like they're building the thing, the interface, you could get like five completely different interfaces and then it's a bit more challenging to figure out what sort of recommendation can you do. And a lot of the times it makes you have to dig a little deeper. Are there even micro patterns? So like certain job functions or roles are really looking to do this while other job functions or roles are looking to do that. So you might be asking everyone to build this magical homepage dashboard interface, but you know, you might learn that you have like three preset templates that you're you're finding from your analysis. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I mean, qualitative research, I think, to your point, is in and of itself just more challenging to, to analyze. <laughs> uh, it's not like survey answers. You mentioned something that intrigues me when you, you said you like to have a, a bag of extra things when you go out in the field, and you mentioned clay. How do you use that? Clay is quite interesting because it doesn't necessarily have a form. So, you know, people can use it as is and make it whatever they want. They don't even have to form the clay. There's this one instance where I used clay to create some sort of environment just to sort of kind of bring the environment to where we were at that time. So, you know, using clay to create like the boulders in a rock climbing gym or um, using clay to represent a tool that you might be trying to recreate or use. Like, for example, you mentioned you use the clay to create an environment. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little more about that. What did that look like? And what was the purpose of that? It's still a part of that car sharing example. So somebody had like a, an event to go to. And this event happened to be a rock climbing event. So being able to create different spaces in the workshop where, you know, a set of seats would be the car, 
a wall with the clay would be the destination. And then like a place with a couch would be their home. So being able to get that full end to end experience of like, you know, you've got plans to go rock climbing, but you need to call the ride share. The rider comes and picks you up. You experience the car ride and then you get to your destination where you do your rock climbing. So in that particular example, it wasn't used as a tool. It was used to create a sense of space of, you know, this is where your destination is kind of like a prop, but like more of like a design prop because you're, you're not necessarily using, using the, the thing, but you're using it to establish a sense of like purpose. So I find when you, you, you create these little spaces in role play, it sort of breaks down the barrier of like, this is weird mm-hmm. <laughs> or like get someone who's not normally accustomed to acting to be like, Oh yeah, I, I can see this being a home or I can see this being a car. So it, it's a little bit less improv and it kind of stimulates uh, the experience of actually doing that event, which helps. Have you shared this with other folks in your company or in your team and um, seen other people using these methods? I'm always happy to share different methods with different researchers. So especially within my own company, we always try these different things. So like we've built this toolkit where people can create like a smart home from different building blocks or like we'll have our own internal reflections where like, you know, dot voting's not working. How can we make it more interesting? Mm. A lot of these ideas are still quite early and infant, but I think one of the purposes of, you know, talking about it with you in this podcast and even sharing these at the Radical Research Summit is to kind of get people really working on it. Going back to that idea I was talking about, I've heard of Facebook kind of taking their interfaces or the, the profile page and like marking it like a grade school teacher. So they'll like get like a red Sharpie or pen and kind of just like mark on it, like the things they didn't like or how they would change that interface to be better suited for them. So that sort of reminds me of like the dot voting, but it's still a bit like it's relying on that person to already have a solution. What would you say your objective with this is? What do you hope other people will get from talking about this? I basically just want people to be a bit more conscious because like a lot of the time we kind of get really comfortable with our own tools and our own methods. And sometimes it's just nice to get inspired and see what, how other people are doing things, you know, whether we take that method or not, or tweak it uh, to make it suit our personal needs. Like it's just hard to find new and different ways of doing things. And the other takeaway is just being more mindful that, you know, a lot of the times when we are moderating something, a lot of the times we're relying on verbal or written feedback, and that's not always going to be readily available. So being able to pivot or supplement things or use some sort of prop activity or visual to stimulate the conversation could be quite helpful. And I can imagine this would be useful even with whole groups of like possibly with children or people who have speech difficulty, you know, yeah, what I mean? uh, like it actually reminds me of this time when I was doing this usability study on an immigration website 
And one of the biggest problems was the English language barrier. Like this was like over five years ago, but like I kind of wish I did that differently because just being able to communicate with what they found frustrating and what they liked was so difficult through the, the guides of like a usability study. Oh, yeah. Well, along those lines, what would you do now? I'd probably use that method that we were talking about before, where we'd use emojis or use colors, making sure that we were on the same page with what those colors meant. Right. And what was really interesting is during one of those studies, the guy was trying to create this metaphor that I wasn't really understanding. He got frustrated and then he took like a piece of paper and then drew me this picture instead. And I just... That I found that really interesting. You know, he really wanted to share this thing. He didn't know how to express it in words, so he drew it instead. So, you know, I think there's there's always going to be, whether it's children or, you know, a different culture with a different language, like you're always going to need alternative ways of getting feedback. That's a really, really great example of a time when you could have had a different outcome, perhaps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I still made it better, but you know, I always wonder, it's like what, like these 30 minute sessions ended up taking longer because I was really trying to get that feedback, make sure I understood it, but I was only using my words and it was definitely a disadvantage. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I'm sure that this is inspiring to other folks who do research to actually just kind of try some new methods that maybe they haven't tried before, or even try to research what other methods are there that don't rely on just asking a question that could get their participants to be more expressive or participatory in the outcome. I think so. Uh, like ideation is always the fun bit, but why can't reflection be just as fun? <laughs> I agree with that. Thank you, Anna, so much for joining me and talking to me and our audience. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Radical Research Summit. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Anna. Thank you. I think the big takeaway for me in this interview was this was a great reminder that different people express themselves best in different ways. So as researchers, we need to be really flexible and adaptable in our approach to get different types of input. How about you? Do you have any non-word-based methods that you use in your research? Share it with us and the larger UX Cake community on our UX Cake LinkedIn or Twitter channel. If you enjoy the UX Cake podcast and you want to help us grow our community, I have three action items for you. First, share this episode with a friend or colleague. There is a share function in every podcast platform, including on our website. You can also share a link to an episode on your work Slack or your social media channel of choice. That gets this content to more people who find it useful. Number two, rate and review the UX Cake podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. This is the social proof that potential sponsors and partners we want to work with look to. If you don't have an iPhone, you can still rate and review in iTunes on your computer. Just search for UX Cake in the iTunes store, click on the podcast, and go to the ratings and reviews button. 
And number three, subscribe to our email list at uxcake.co and to our Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or all of them, if you like. If you email or message us, we will always reply to you. And we comment back on all posts that mention us. It's just not always instant. I'll let you know. And if you've stuck around this long, you definitely deserve a cool UX Cake sticker. Follow us on any of our social media channels and write a post that mentions UX Cake and the hashtag stickers. And we'll send you some for you and your friends. Thanks again for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite. UX life is hard. Eat more cake. <laughs>